Hello and welcome to The Critic Podcast. This week we spoke to TV critic Adam Labore on the monarchy-based satire, The Windsors, and George Orwell biographer DJ Taylor shares his insights on the many women who were pursued by the great author. I'm here with the television critic of The Critic magazine, Adam Labore. Adam, welcome to The Critic Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. For the April edition of The Critic, you are turning your eyes to The Windsors. The Windsors, the new Channel 4 uh, television series. What is it? Well, The Windsors is uh, it's a, it's a satirical comedy which sort of pokes fun at the royal family. And it's very, I found it to be very, very topical. Its script seems to be really up to date. It's taking the Mickey out of Harry and William and Meghan's wokeness, and also about Prince Charles kind of flailing around looking for a role as he waits to ascend to the throne. And it's biting, but it's not quite cruel. It's sort of affectionate satire. Is it very similar to uh, um, Spitting Image of the 1980s, the way in which it satirises the royal family? Yes, it's very similar. There's definite influence of Spitting Image uh, in the Windsors, I would say, because the characters are quite... It's it's humans. It's acted by actual human actors. It's not puppets, as Spitting Image was. It's It's over the top, and the characters are exaggerated, but they're actual actors rather than puppets, so that's that's the difference. But it's definitely drawing on that iconoclastic strain which we saw in Spitting Image of the 1980s. And it's interesting because there's a kind of continuum of mocking our institutions, but at the same time sort of mocking them almost lovingly. There's obviously nothing new about mocking the royal family. One thinks back to the cartoons of Gilray uh, and Rowlandson and, and so on. It, it's, as, it's as old as the hill, really. Are, are they just flogging a dead dead horse here, or is it uh, is are the royal family the gift that keeps on giving? Well, I think um, the royal family are the gift that keeps on giving to satirists because if you if you think if you step outside for a moment and you objectively think, what is a royal family? I mean, it is an absurd concept. The idea that some people receive all this money from the public purse to live in grand palaces and swan around cutting ribbons and dispensing benevolence. It is quite a ridiculous idea in the 21st century. So there is that, that part of it. But at the same time, the skill of this programme is that the people within it are brought to life. They actually get a script of half an hour or so out of each episode with a storyline that's very contemporary. So the one I watched most recently has Donald Trump asking Prince Charles if he'll take over as King of America because he needs a king, because he's actually, spoiler alert, in secret cahoots with Camilla on some behind-the-scenes scheme. So Camilla's pushing Charles to do this, and Charles is desperate to do this because he hasn't really got that much to do until he becomes king. And at the same time, Harry and Meghan are already in New York and Meghan is aghast at this because she's basically run away to America to get away from Harry's, from Harry's father. And then Harry says to her, but Meghan, Dad's the only one that listens when you talk about homeopathy. And so she's sort of uh, smart. Yes, oh, yes, maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, maybe he's not so bad. So it's, it's very, very topical. There's uh, there's so much material in reality with the royal family between the, the wokeness of, of Meghan and Harry and... Uh, 
Prince Andrew's difficulties, difficulties uh, at the yeah. moment. I mean, th- this is so rich, I almost wonder, is it beyond satire? I mean, the, the real thing is surely compelling enough. Well, it, it is. I mean, it, it, especially when we see that story recently, which uh, came a bit too late for me to work into the column. But Harry, uh, it seems, has been pranked by two Russians who rang him up claiming to be Greta Thunberg, and at which point he apparently, although they're not really commenting on it, uh, but if, if the story is true... Uh, poured his heart out about all sorts of things from his relationship with the royal family to Donald Trump to the global warming to some kind of modest praise for our prime minister and it's a really extraordinary thing and and my overall feeling when I read that was was of sadness actually is that here's a young man in the prime of his life pouring his heart out to a complete stranger uh, even if you know even if it had been Greta Thunberg why would you share all of those things because there seems to be this illusion that there's a sort of globalised social elite of people, rock stars and musicians and glamorous lawyers and activists like Greta Thunberg, that are all pretending they're friends. But friendship is based on a deep relationships of years before. They just kind of share this commonality of celebrity. And, and, and it was just an extraordinary thing. If you, if you read what he's supposed to have said to her, you just think overall... Poor, poor boy, why is he doing this? He must be very lost. But also, why would you share all this stuff with a complete stranger anyway, even if it was her? And is this perhaps why the tone of shows like Spitting Image and uh, The Windsors work for the British royal family in that there's satire there, but it's slightly tinged with with some affection as well. And actually, if that little note of affection was removed, people would find it actually rather cruel. Exactly, yeah, and it's a very delicate balancing act. And I think it says a lot about Britain that we have these institutions like royalty which are solid and occupy a place in our national consciousness, but we can mock them as well. And somehow that's part of the process that's involved with it. They're almost saying, we're here, and it is kind of ridiculous that you have to curtsy to the Queen when you get an honour, and that the Queen, you know, that they have all these vast amounts of wealth and holdings and everything. And that's the kind of the price that we'll pay, that we, the royals, will pay, is that you know, we'll let you make these satires about us. In Europe today, monarchy is a feature of liberal democracies. One of the interesting things is that the old ancien regimes of Eastern Europe uh, no longer have monarchies. Um, do you feel that if you, uh, you're someone who's spent a, a lot of your life in Hungary and, and in what we used to call the old Metal Europa, yes. uh, yeah. do you feel that there's, there's something of the fabric of those societies that has been lost by the fact that they're now all republics? I think absolutely something was lost, but it goes back to the end of the, sec- uh, the, end of the First World War when the Austro-Hungarian Empire was dismantled that you had a region that was held together for hundreds of years around a monarchy, around a kind of commonality. There was always a tension between the national identities and the identity of empire, but the empire was a kind of glue that held it all together. And if you look at the work of writers like Joseph Roth, you know, the Radetzky March is, is really is, is a eulogy for the lost world of the Habsburg Empire. And at his funeral, uh, when he died in Paris, before the Second World War, there was a, a supposedly a, a wreath from the Habsburgs just with the word Otto on it, you know, one of the last members of the Habsburg royal family. And there's a nostalgia 
I think, across the region, because people know that, yes, okay, the idea of monarchy as here is a bit silly in itself, but it acts as a glue. It's, it's something beyond party politics, and that's why I think the royal family is very important in Britain as well, especially in these turbulent times. Now, when I was younger, I was uh, very, you know, a very left-wing Republican, and I thought the whole, you know, I looked at everything on a kind of rational economic basis. This is absurd. It costs too much money. We could do better things with the money. Well, on an economic basis, yes, that's true, actually, but there's other values, and it brings other values, and I think social cohesion and stability and you have a central pole which stays the same while governments come and go and parties come and go is crucial. And what I saw in Central Europe was, you know, after the dissolution of the monarchy, you had these kind of uh, authoritarian quasi-governments, uh, these authoritarian quasi-democracies in Poland and Hungary in the interwar years. Then you had the war, you had uh, the Soviet invasion, you had the, ho- the destruction of the Holocaust, and then you had 50 years of communism. And these countries have never really recovered sufficiently from the first stage, from the 1920s, of the loss of empire. They're all still quite traumatised by the collapse of the empire on some level. And the institutions in these countries are, are thin and they're weak. And, and perhaps in a way, if the empire had stayed or some monarchy had stayed, it, it would have given a pole around which the rest of the society could have developed. It always strikes me whenever I'm in Vienna that the whole iconography of monarchy is everywhere in Vienna. The double-headed Habsburg eagle is everywhere. Uh, And yet it's a court city but no longer has a court. And it's a very grand city and a very marvellous city. But it's the, the Austrian Republic has never created a iconography which has remotely the same appeal is that a problem with, with republics generally? Yeah, I think so. Because I remember for a while, uh, you know, when there was some talk here in the Blair years of uh, maybe we should diminish the monarchy or abolish it, someone said, OK, if you're going to get rid of the head of state, you have to have someone who's the, not uh, the monarch as the head of state. So who's that going to be? No, it's going to be invariably somebody, it's going to be a politician or someone from a part of public life on one side or another on a particular issue. So they will essentially have to be a polarising figure. And the whole point about a monarchy is it has to be a unifying figure. And yes, I mean, Austrian politics is split down the middle between the the left and the right. The country was kind of carved up like a sacker torta for years after the Second World War. A bit for us, a bit for you, a bit for us. And so... The idea that you could find someone from either one of those sides that people could unite around it is, yeah, I mean, who, who, you know, try and think of, you know, former heads of state in Austria. I mean, who's, who springs to mind? Obviously, in Austria, they'll, they'll remember them. But there's people don't, with those people who've held that office don't have historical resonance or international recognition. Well, Kurt, yeah. Kurt, Kurt Waldheim. Yeah, apart from Kurt Waldheim, <laughs> yeah, which is exactly, right yeah, you know, a Nazi, which hmm. is, that's not really what, what you're looking for. I mean, yeah, that, that's actually a good example. The most famous Austrian politician uh, that people have heard of is Kurt Waldheim, who, you know, who, who was an active Nazi during the Second World War and managed to kind of persuade people that he wasn't somehow. 
So, yeah, I, th- I think republics are, are they're a bit drab, really, aren't they? One of the interesting things, of course, you know, it's not just in Eastern Europe where uh, former monarchies have fallen and been replaced by republics. I- in many of the countries in Southeast Asia as well, one thinks of Burma, which had a monarchy which the British got rid of. And then when things went bad for, for Burma after independence, there was, there was no strong unifying entity for the people of Burma to turn to, so they turned to, to a military junta instead. Um, problems of Cambodia and, and Vietnam, similarly, the Vietnamese emperor uh, was one of the victims of the, of the end of the Second World War, similarly. Is it actually anything specific about Europe, therefore, or, or is this a worldwide phenomenon that actually monarchy has a role which other systems don't properly fulfil? Well, I, I think... Uh Absolutely. Monarchy does have a role which other systems don't fulfil. It's not a European phenomenon. And if you think about it, if you look back through human history over the last two or three or four thousand years, you have societies which are completely disconnected, Uh, like in South America and in Africa and in China and in the Middle East, who likely have hardly any, if, if any, contact at all. They've all evolved the concept of kingship. So this, it seems to be that it touches something in human society. Now, when I, I'm sounding a bit rah-rah for monarchy mm. here, I don't mean that we all have to kind of, you know, that these people should have legal powers mm. or have a right to tell us what to do or have a, a God-given mandate to rule over us. I'm talking about a kind of constitutional monarchy and a liberal democracy like we have, where it's a symbol of continuity but no real role in day-to-day politics. And I think that's right. We don't want kings and queens forming and dissolving governments. So the question is how to get that balance mm. between royal powers while maintaining, a de- you know, in a democratic constitutional framework. So we have that. So uh, whereas uh, some, you know, the experience of Asian countries is different because they, they haven't evolved in the same way that we have. Are we just cloaking in grand terms what is really mankind's basic love for a bit of glamour in a soap opera? I think you're completely right, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we like glamour. Who doesn't like glamour? Everybody likes looking at what Meghan's wearing and what Kate's wearing. I mean, it's, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But we mustn't have too much adulation. No, we mustn't think they've got all the answers. I think that's one of the, problem, one of the reasons why Meghan ran into trouble, because we don't... Although a lot of the things she said were, were, were true about climate change and privilege and, and, uh, and helping people that are less well-off than she is, we don't want to hear it from her because mm. we, uh, it, it doesn't sound right. It's tone-deaf. You know, yeah. the, the optics are bad, to use these you know, mm. PR phrases. Mm. It's, it's the job of the royals to smile and cut the ribbon and mm. be there as a symbol of stability. Don't, don't engage too much in, in everyday issues. Mm-hmm. And if you do, don't be a you know, van door of a target because you're flying around in private jets while telling us about climate change. That's annoying. But having said all that, I also want to say, I think it's a real shame that she and Harry left because the irritating wokeness is a tactical question which would be solved. The overall strategic question is how does the royal family survive in very fractured, difficult times? Mm. You know, in Brexit, coronavirus, who knows what might happen next? You know, there might be some other left field black swan event. There might be another economic crisis. We've got no idea what the knock-on effect of coronavirus might be, if it's going to cause some serious economic collapse. 
in the next six months or it's all going to be over in six weeks and we'll think phew we went through it but at these times you need these symbols of stability and they brought they got star power mm. harry and Meghan, the sussexes they have star power whether one approves of it or not it's there and it could have been very useful to a, a very useful means of strengthening the royal the royal family in the 21st century yeah, they're leaving at uh, leaving at, at the wrong moment. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it's it's very sad. Mm-hmm. It's very it's a, it's really a shame. Well, the the Windsor's the television sitcom may come and go, but it sounds like nevertheless the 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 Windsor's themselves will probably stay in their position uh, in, in British life for for some time to come, whatever the junior members uh, may do with their travel plans. Adam, I very much hope so. Adam Labour, great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. In this section of this week's Critic Podcast, I'm with the novelist, writer and biographer, DJ Taylor. DJ Taylor, welcome to the Critic Podcast. Very good to be here. You are not only the biographer of Orwell, the uh, Orwell of Life won the Whitbread uh, Prize, what, 17, 18 years ago now? A long time ago. A long time ago now. And uh, you're now writing a a new life of George Orwell. But in the March edition of The Critic, uh, you've written an article for us about George Orwell and uh, women. Um, Reading it, it transpires that, that George Orwell knew a lot of women, knew, knew a lot of women both biblically and, and uh, in all sorts of other ways. Would you say he was a, uh, or would we now describe his behaviour as that of, of a sexual predator? It's a very interesting question. The, the hook on which, to which this piece was attached is that an American biographer called Sylvia Topp has written uh, an exhaustive, a punctiliously researched uh, biography of Orwell's first wife, Eileen, uh, which has just come out. And this uh, is a very convenient way, I think, of framing his, in, you know, his relationship, his in, a long series of relationships with, as you say, with a great many women over the years. Um, to try and uh, try to sort of define the kind of man that he was in respect of women, a lot of it, it has to be said, is still in shadow. I mean, there are the great speculation as to, you know, Burmese mistresses, for example, when he served in the um, in the police force in Burma in the 1920s. Um, and yet you there is no there is no ev- there's no hard and fast evidence of anything. You know, there are some very suggestive poems about Burmese prostitutes and this mm-hmm. kind of thing. But it can never when when you asked, I mean, a previous biographers always sort of would ask old Burma hands, you know, Eric Blair, was he a great one for the for the, the native ladies? And mm. they could they would never come up with anything mm. conclusive. So and you know, as regards his relationships with women in the nineteen thirties, when these things become begin begin to become um well documented, um again we can we can identify various women that he was friendly with, you know, to use the cliché of the time, and we can identify women that he very purposefully uh, desired to marry and wasn't able to, but um, so much of it is, 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 is reduced to speculation. I mean, for example, when I was researching, this is for the, the initial biography nearly 20 years ago, uh, when I was researching what he got up to in Southwold on the Suffolk coast, where he lived on and off at his parents' house in the late 20s and early 30s, 
the most extraordinary stuff began to sort of seep up out of the ground and people would confidently write to me and say, oh yes, he was engaged to a girl called so-and-so and so, and you would think, well, really? There was no evidence of this. And this is all part of a wider thing about vast areas, even now, you know, when, when, when you know, large amounts of extra correspondence have become available. Large parts of Orwell's life are still gathered up in shadow, and a lot of the shadow does, I think, still hang over his relationships with women. What struck me as interesting is that he seems to have either got engaged or, or sought to get engaged to a great number of women. Was he uh, just someone who fell in love very easily, or does this speak of a greater neediness? I think he was desperate for female companionship. Um, he was a very, the more I study Orwell over the years, the odder I think that he was. The way in which his mind worked, the sometimes the absolutely, in somewhat sometimes almost chilling detachment from you know the everyday world. And um, there was also a way too in which he dramatized his life. You, you see this a lot in some of, the, some of the, the observations of the more astute amongst his friends. There's a lot of self-dramatizing going on, but there is an awful lot of detached. One of, the, one of the, the best stories about him, or one of the most revealing stories about him that I ever came across was when he and Eileen, his first wife, were living in Kilburn in the early 1940s. And she went out one evening, leaving um, shepherd's pie baking in the oven for, for Orwell and a dish of jellied eels on the floor for the cat. She came back, found that Orwell had eaten the jellied eels while the cat was sort of looking rather cross, uh, while the shepherd's pie slowly incinerated in the oven. You see, it never occurred to him that that wasn't his supper. There's a bowl of jellied eels, he ate them. Um, but is this so, something of the, the absent-minded professor? Uh, I think approach, so. I mean, yeah. it, again, you see, he... Uh, Anthony Pohl made the point, and there's always been speculation and, and numerous myths and have been erected over the 19-year-old Orwell going off to Burma to be in the, the, the Imperial Police Force there uh, in 1922. And um, Anthony Pohl, great friend of his, made the point that, um, that Orwell never really grasped what a job would be like. So, so, in other words, he was the kind of person who was capable of going off to the Far East, you know, to serve for at least five years in the Burmese police force without ever really having established in his mind what that might consist of. Mm. I think that's a very good, that's a very shrewd point of polls. There is there is a way in which you know. So, I mean, he, the, the you know, other examples of his complete sort of the complete unreality of his approach to life when he was working at the BBC. For example, and he found that um, he found that there was a sound effects department. You see, and it was when he was a talks producer on the Eastern Service, and apparently, according to an associate, he rang he rang up the sound effects department and said, oh, "Marvelous! I'm so glad I found you. Could you send round a good mixed box?" You know, there was, he had no idea what what was going on, what the, yeah. what the thing consisted of, and um, and so there, there was this kind of detachment, uh, and he and he pined for female companionship. I think we can you know we can we can see that, and all his. Is, um, you know, all the, the the male characters in his books are as well, and I, th I think it's something to do with the um, the essential solitariness that lies at the heart of all of this. Because I mean, all all the men in Orwell's novels, the far, apart from Animal Farm, obviously, which is which is a figurative satire, all the men are these desperate, lonely, solitary people on whom an oppressive, extraneous world is silently pressing. And the women or the women are their, are their kind of ways out of this. Um, and I, I, I'm sure that has something to do with 
you know, his own psychology and his own interior world. If you were writing a biography of, let's say, a, a leading industrialist, then mm. uh, that industrialist relationships with, with other women might be in- incidental to the main biography. But mm. when you're writing about uh, one of the great writers of the 20th century, there's always an assumption that the relationships I- inform his literature and uh, mm. are therefore integral to the larger story. Um, whether or not they did, do you think Orwell was seeking mu- a muse or muses or was going out with women really as a way to uh, um, uh, better write about them as characters in his novels? I don't think he was seeking muses, mm-hmm. no. And I don't think... I mean, there, there are... The, the, in terms of identifications, the one that people always make is that they tend to presume that Julia is Sonia Brownell, his second wife. And he married in 1949, just before 1984 um, was being published. And um, I'm not so sure about this because there are substantial, there are great differences between Sonia and what we know about her and about Julia. Um, one of them is Julia's resolute unintellectuality. I mean, one of the most significant passages for me in 1984 is when Winston, with great tremulous excitement, begins to read from the, the forbidden book, Emmanuel Goldstein's um, you know, the, the Oligarchical Collectivism. And within a few paragraphs, Julia has just fallen fast asleep. Now, Sonia, who you know, who knew her and you know, knew her intellectual onions, she would have been wide awake listening riveted to that. And, I, and there are also other kind of incidental references which seem to hark back to other earlier romantic incidents in Orwell's life and they're, they're, to me it's um, although I can see traces of Sonia in that um, I mean by the way I mean Sil- Sylvia Topp in her biography um, is convinced that it's Eileen who was who was coming through which I find really do find somewhat far-fetched as the model for Julia but there are all kinds of incidental references to other women that we know about mm-hmm. and um, the what is fascinating about this is actually is to, to me um, is that the whole idea in his writings and I think um, you know beyond the fiction beyond into his own sort of his other life is that um, romantic as assignations romantic love with him is all bound up with nature Mm. Uh, you know, there's the great um, Winston in 1984 is obsessed with the idea of the golden country. Uh, you know, this, this sort of natural world where you can sort of almost uh, almost an Eden where you can sort of run free and, and, and be yourself. And I think a lot of, uh, certainly some of the most sort of intensely romantic passages in Orwell's writing happen outdoors, plain air frolics, mm. you know, mm. get, the, uh, get, get the girl outside, get her, mm. in just the same way that the real women, you know, the, the girls he knew in Suffolk in the 1930s, all the letters that he writes, said, well, let's go on a nature ramble, let's walk over, let's go birds nesting, let's go and see if we can find some frogs spawn in the ponds on the car. And you think, oh, yes. Mm. You know, this is mm. all see where this of, is going. That's right, yeah. you can see where mm. this is going. So mm. it's, it's all bound up with his view of nature, with, mm. with, the, with the outdoors, with the natural world, I think, is his mm. view of women, mm-hmm. in an intensely romantic and particularised way. Um, would you say, with, with his first marriage to, to Eileen, which, of course, um, ended with her death on, on the operating table. Um, would you say he, that that was f- for both of them an essentially happy marriage? He says somewhere that um, it, they had their difficulties and I think they both played away because it's almost certain that Eileen had an affair with Georges Kopp, who was Orwell's commander in, in the Spanish Civil War. 
uh, when she was out there, and Orwell played away too, and I think she was very un made very unhappy about this. But Orwell, Orwell says some of it was a proper marriage, mm. in that they sustained each other and they got on together. Although it has to be said that Eileen had no illusions about Orwell. I mean, she said once I mean, she had a, she was devoted to her brother Lawrence. Uh, it was a doctor who died uh, in the retreat from Dunkirk in 1940. And she said once that if I summoned him from the end of the world, Lawrence would come. George would not do that. Mm. Uh, and I think that's quite mm. significant. Mm. Um, but um, again, he was, but again, you know, in, in, in the aftermath of her unexpected death, he was emotionally devastated. Mm. Uh, but his devastation took a peculiar form in that he was so sort of. Um, knocked sideways by that he almost literally went around proposing marriage to any eligible woman, young woman who came his way in 1945 6. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in what? It's a bit desperate. It is a bit desperate. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's almost ridiculous when, when looked at in the cold light of, mm -hmm. of retrospect. I mean, there was a woman called, um, she was called Anne Popham in those days. She um, later reimagined herself as Anne Olivier Bell, the widow, and was married to Quentin Bell of Bloomsbury. Mm -hmm. Uh, historian Vanessa Bell's son, and she she had the most cursory nodding acquaintanceship with all. They lived in the same block of flats in Islington in 1945-6, and they I think just nodded to each other on the stair. A piece of you know, piece of paper, letter comes through the door. Dear Miss Popham, would you be free to take some tea with me? Mm. So she went to tea, and within a few minutes, Orwell had manoeuvred her into the corner of the room, and his way of asking her to marry him was. Do you think that you could take? Do you think you could look after me? And mm. She was completely sort of horrified. Nothing mm. in their very tenuous relationship hitherto had, had prepared her for this. And right. So of course she. It's all about <coughs> me, isn't it, though, for him? It's all about neediness, and it's mm. all about sort of desperation. Mm. That sort of and so much of Orwell's life, I think, and I and I think it's fair to say this does have this kind of end of tether quality, and I think he realised this himself because one of the most there, there are one or two. Again, typically of Orwell, he had a tendency not to unburden himself to his friends, to his intimate mm. acquaintances, but to people who wrote to him out of the blue. So mm. there are several letters, for example, fairly recently discovered from written in the period after the war, just to sort of admirers who'd sent him pots of jam or had just written to him, where he kind of unburdens himself and he'll say something like, you know, I was really rather hysterical during through the war, not in a very good... And you think that's not ever anything that you said mm. to Anthony Pohl mm. or to Julian Simons or friends mm. of yours at the time, but you would say it to complete strangers who wrote you fan letters. But I think, again, I think that's quite revealing of the sort of person he was. You've written one life of him and now you're writing an entirely new life of him. Mm. Uh, coming to him a second time round, are you discovering a different George Orwell? I'm discovering different... There's a lot of new material, so I'm discovering a whole lot more, for example, about his life in the 1930s and about his romantic life in the 1930s. And um, it has to be said that the volume of new material for the early life is, is not very extensive. I mean, mm -hmm. there never was very much about his time at Eton, Burma, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the first steps he was taking to become a writer in the 1920s, but um, it's good to have, you know, the new perspective. You, you begin to find different ways into him. I mean, for example, um, uh, somebody, I, I did something with the BBC Ideas online people just before Christmas, and um, obviously they were interested in the 70th anniversary of 1984, and they said, um, what about Orwell and technology? What do you think about Orwell? You know, it, 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 was, it was actually couched in a rather 
Fasson away. It was all, you know, Woodall will have had a... Mm. To entice the young people, yes. they, had to, they had to ask, <laughs> Woodall will have had a smartphone, yeah, Woodall will have been yeah. on Twitter. But mm. then that made me think about um, what Orwell thought about technology, because um, obviously the, um, the whole of um, the, the kind of the bureaucratic totalitarian regime of 1984 is based on the manipulation of technology, of the eye in the room. Uh, you know, every time you go out of doors, you're worrying that there are mm. <coughs> microphones taping what you're saying. And I re- as the more I thought about it, the more I realised that, uh, that I thought Orwell had the absolutely, um, what I think is still our, the main, you know, the, the con- our contemporary attitude, most intelligent people's attitude toward technology is that we, uh, we are fascinated by its benefits, and mm. things, but we're not actually interested in it in a, in a nuts and bolts technical way. So, I mean, for example, the telescreen in 1984, how does that work? Mm. Nobody mm. knows. No, well, never explains actually how every apartment in uh, Airstrip One is able mm. to have its, what's it's doing is beamed back mm. to some controlling intelligence. How does that work? Mm. You know, how do, mm. all the, how do all the outdoors microphones work? You never find out because I don't think he's actually interested in it. Mm. He's mm. interested in the implications of it without being interested in the minutiae of it. And I think that's a very common modern attitude. Anyway, so, you know, thinking about things like that, I think, produces different sort of apertures, possibly, different, mm. different ways in. Orwell is, is, is bigger now than he was in his own lifetime and mm. uh, is, is big all around the world. Uh, do you think uh, readers from different countries f- discover different things in him? Is there a peculiarly British approach to reading Orwell, which one wouldn't have uh, if, if, was fr- if one I was think, from elsewhere? Um, I th- it is interesting in that different, different nationalities, different regions find particular things to sustain them. I mean, I, I gather that um, Animal Farm struck a particular chord in um, Zimbabwe at the end of the mm. Mugabe regime, where it was seen as a satire mm. on... Um, you know, the entitlement of uh, ZANU-PF and Mugabe was thought to be the head pig, you mm. know, this, this sort of thing. So there's, mm. there's that. I mean, in different, different, um, different constituencies, I mean, you, you know, one comes at, at Orwell from different angles. I mean, most people read, I mean, take myself, for example. I mean, most school children come to Orwell through 1984 and Animal mm. Farm because mm. those are the set texts. In fact, the first of his books that I ever read properly was A Clergyman's Daughter, the right. second novel, right. which is not probably one of his better known books mm. and it's about you know it's about a, it's a provincial spinster spinster in her late 20s who's um, who you're know, living in a suffolk market town very loosely a thinly disguised southwold and mm. i don't know what it was about it but mm. that was what hooked me on orwell which is not the usual way in and then when i subsequently began to read those marvelous old penguin the old penguin four volume letters journalism <clears throat> and essays and curiously it was it was those very very thoughtful and in some ways groundbreaking essays that he wrote about what are sometimes quite minor literary figures but Orwell thought there was something in them and he encouraged me to find that there was something I've never I would never have started reading Thackeray seriously hadn't had I not read the essay that Orwell wrote from about him in Tribune in about 1944 um, uh, or, or Smollett the Scottish novelist Tobias Smollett again there's a wonderful essay that Orwell just decided to write for a little magazine and um, and it, it guides you through all, all manner of sort of literary undergrowth that you wouldn't previously have investigated so there's there I think but I think this is quite common if Orwell uh, were alive now mm. would he be Amused by the focus on particularly 1984 and Animal Farm, his 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 political writing, 
overtly political writing, or uh, would he? Uh, I mean, w would he just feel that, that that is focusing on only one part of his of his wider contribution? I don't think he would have made the distinction because, I mean, as he famously said, after 1936, everything he wrote, he thought, mm. was you know for the cause of democratic socialism, uh, small d, large s. Mm. I think, um, but I think um, I hadn't realised. I mean, I, I, in the last year, for an American publisher, I wrote a self-styled biography of 1984, start to finish, conception to, uh, and it. I hadn't, I think, previously realised just how how um, extraordinarily all his resources, mental and physical, from about 1944 onwards, were focused on that book, mm. which was very, very difficult for him to write, far more difficult than anything else he'd ever written, and not simply because his health was cracking up. I mean, his health was cracking up from the mid-1940s onwards, but from the moment that he first got the idea to, its, to publication, 1984 took him nearly six years, which is extraordinary given that he was used to writing novels in six months. I mean, he was a famous fast worker, Orwell, and yet getting the intellectual armature in place for that book really did exercise him. I mean, he wrote several drafts of it, which again is unprecedented for Orwell. He would just write something and type it up. That was the way he worked. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the kind of, the effort he put in and the, the sort of intellectual lines of approach that he was pursuing and the, the way in which I think it's still, I mean, I still, even now, given how long it took to write that book, I still think that 1984 still has a kind of provisional quality mm. to it. And it would have been a different book if he'd have had more time and better health, mm. been able to finish it. So I, I haven't, again, that is not something I think I'd realized until fairly recently, just how, um, I mean, you know, all, all well biography is an exercise in teleology. You start with 1984 and then you work backwards to find out how it came. But I, I really do feel that it was that he, that's all his sights are set on for the last few years of his life. And so, you know, everything that comes before is a brick in that wall. Mm. Well, DJ Taylor, it's been wonderful discussing all well with you. We, we look forward to the new life, which will be out in uh, 2023. I hope 2023. And in the, the interim, I'm doing um, critical editions of the six novels, which I think will start appearing sooner than 2023. In fact, I'm hoping the first couple will be out next year. Great. Which will be the first two? Uh, we're doing it chronologically, so I think the first two will be Burmese Days and The Clergyman's Daughter. Wonderful. So that will be we good. will look forward to that. Thank you. DJ Taylor, thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this week's Critic podcast, but why not get The Critic in print? Right now we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to thecritic.co.uk for details.